You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Judges and Ruth this week. My name is Dean, the pastor here at City Church. Thanks for joining us this morning. We're just going through the Bible. Uh, we're doing an overview sermon of every book of the Bible this year. Uh, sometimes we put two books together uh, so we can actually make it uh, 66 books through 52 weeks. Uh, so Judges and Ruth are together this week and they actually do flow together as we'll see in just a minute. Let's pray together and then we will jump in to this important part of the scripture story. Father, we are grateful for your word that you've given to us. What an act of grace that it is that we really do have the words of our God. Forgive us when we take that for granted. Let us be people who want to read and to hear your words. As to be with all the churches in our city as they gather today, as none of us are doing this by ourselves, that we'll be united in the truth of the gospel. And we ask you to keep the enemy out of this town and out of our churches. And we also ask that we will see people in our city come to know Jesus as Lord. Uh, that our city will turn from idols to the living God understood through Jesus Christ who died for sinners. So I ask you to be with me today as I share your word that not be from my opinion, but of your truth. And I ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the events in Judges, they take place in between Joshua's death and the rise of Samuel, and then also Saul becoming king. And the death of Joshua is actually very significant for this story. Uh, Out of the gate, in the very beginning of Judges, it says, after the death of Joshua. Uh, So it's very significant, this great leader uh, who led God's people into the promised land, all that had been promised by God to them had been uh, coming fulfilled, seen it actually take place, crossing the Jordan River, going in, taking land, taking out all the enemies of God, all the idolaters as God commanded. If you weren't here last week, I'd really encourage you uh, to go back and listen to our judges sermon, not because it was like some great sermon, but because the content there is very helpful. I really went through some of the more complicated things in the book of Joshua about God Uh, demanding that his people take out and destroy all the Canaanite people. So I'd love for you to go back uh, and check all of that out. Uh, But the theme of Judges, we could say, is the canonization of Israel. As in Israel becoming more like the world and like the people, the Canaanites, than actually the people of God. Its overall message is that God's people, God's chosen people, that they self-destruct when they actually disobey God and get their values and get their truth, get their morals, their identity, their satisfaction, any word you want to use from their pagan neighbors rather than actually from God himself. When the world influences them rather than them being the ones who influence the world. So a little background, here's from Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess, so then Joshua actually happened, so Deuteronomy we go to Joshua, and he drives out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. That's really important. That didn't matter, right? They still took them out. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. That was the clear instruction. That you're to wipe them off the face of the earth. Here's God really cleaning out idolatry. And again, last week we really got into how that's possible and why and why it's adjusted and all of those things. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. And this makes Cobra Kai look nice, right? Show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. 
You must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Now, people in the past, like racist people in the past, have tried to use this part as a case against interracial marriage. That is not even remotely what is happening here, if you see verse 4. Because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. So it's not about ethnicity, it's about idolatry. So the reason why God's people are told not to intermingle or to marry with other nations is not because of a race or a skin color or a geographical location. It is because they're not the people of God. So the New Testament kind of counterpart would not be you shouldn't marry someone from another race. The translation would be you shouldn't marry someone who's not a Christian. That's the, that's the comparison. That's the takeaway from that part. This is important to bring clarity to that. I mean, no one who's intellectually honest actually believes that this is about interracial marriage, but it's used by people who claim the name of Christ but are still racist to this day as some kind of justification for that view. So I just want to point that out. This is not in any way, shape, or form about that. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will swiftly destroy you. Why? As we said last week, because the wages of sin is death, that God takes sin seriously. He won't let sin go unpunished. When we sin, we don't just make a mistake. It's not just a moment of of a mess up. We actually sin against God, like actually against God himself. And we have to believe that's a big deal and that actually matters. Instead, this is what you were to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their carved images. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. Not because of anything you've done, but because of God's grace, because of God's mercy. He has chosen you. And don't be like those people who are not of God. In fact, God wants all their idolatry eliminated from the earth. See, this book is about God delivering his people. But we're going to see in Judges, it's about delivering his people from the mess that they create by failing to actually obey God. We see this more in Deuteronomy. However, you must not let any living thing survive among the cities of these people the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You must completely destroy them. Be Hithite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So you won't teach, so they won't teach you to do all the detestable acts they do for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. Before they go, here's what Joshua tells them into the land. Be very strong, continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so you do not turn from it to the right or the left, and so you do not associate with those nations remaining among you. Do not call on the names of their God. That's what this is all about. God wants to be worshipped solely. He won't share his glory or his worship with anything or anyone else. He says, or make oaths to them. Do not serve them or bow and worship to them. He says, instead, There's an alternative that God wants for his people. Be loyal to the Lord your God. As you have been to this day, Joshua's people largely different than what was happening in the generation before. They had been loyal to God and worshiped God. So the Lord has driven out great and powerful nations before you, and no one is able to stand against you to this day. Even though they were numerous and more powerful, God is the one that's delivered you. One of you routed a thousand because the Lord your God was fighting for you as he promised. So diligently watch yourselves, 
love the Lord your God, if you ever turn away and become loyal to the rest of these nations remaining among you, if you intermarry or associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out before you. God's not going to bless you as you continue to be an idol worshiper. They will become a snare and a trap for you, a sharp stick for your sides and thorns in your eyes until you disappear from the good land the Lord your God has given you. They're, gonna, rather, they're not going to be an obstacle for you. If you refuse to obey me, they're going to be the ones that are in the way rather than the ones you simply destroy so God's people can be in the land that God has promised. So while many 21st century readers have issues with God's judgment in Canaan, which again we said last week is understandable on the surface, they maybe struggle with how this was all carried out. We talked about last week how that makes sense, and you're not crazy to think, well, why, why did this happen, and why was this... Why would God do this when we went through the fact that God had been patient with them for 400 years, so much time to be able to repent, and they never did? Uh, that God punishes sin? That ultimately, if we don't think God punishes sin, the death of Jesus was unnecessary, because Jesus is the one that ultimately died for the sins that we have committed. But notice that while many people have issues with the judgment of the Canaanites, notice the defeated Canaanite in Judges 1 did not have any issue with it. When Adonai Bezek fled, Judges 1, they pursued him, caught him, and cut off his big thumbs and big toes. Jeez, don't mess with God's people. Good gracious. Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. God has repaid me for what I have done. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. See, God's judgment is not random. God's judgment is always based on the paths that we have chosen. Are we going to worship God or are we going to worship something else? So here's what we see happening in Judges. When Israel became stronger, again, they're already in the land, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor. And now you'll see why I spent some time in Deuteronomy and Joshua before I jumped into Judges. But never drove them out completely. What was God's command to them? Not to use them for labor, but to drive them out completely. At that time, Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived among them in Gezer. When God told them, do not live among them. We see in verse 32, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land because they failed to drive them out. Here is blatant disobedience against God. But what's going to happen, his concern, is not that they randomly are with people from other places. It's that all of a sudden their idols are going to influence them. What they worship is going to become what we worship. See, the idols are like spiritual landmines. They're ready to blow at any time. That's how idols are for us. As we kind of walk around and try to navigate through this world, how quickly everything can blow up if we're actually not focused on the Lord. And this is not new. Think of how influenced the church is today by the surrounding culture. Now, God does not tell us to avoid the culture. He doesn't tell us to separate from sinners. He tells us to separate from sin, two very different things. Here, God, in this time, in this context, is making a people for himself, 
He's driving out idolatry from the land. Uh, this is very important to know. Uh, he is, in doing this, he is teaching these people what it means to be the people of God. Uh, now we are the people of God by conversion into Christ, and we're still learning what that means. But God in his grace wants us to go forward with the great commission, making the gospel known. But how easy is it for idols to blow up in us instantly if we're not focused on the Lord? So we see this happen. The angel of the Lord went up from Gagal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt. Now, almost every week we talk about through this series, the significance of reminders, of God reminding his people over and over again who he is and what he's done for them, the grace he has shown them, how he's delivered them, the mercy he's given them, the Passover, which was to be observed forever uh, by God's people, the night that God spared his people from judgment by the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, that that was the substitute for them. We've spent a lot of time talking about this. And the land I promised to your ancestors. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You're to tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What have you done? Therefore, I now say, I, I will not drive out these people from you. And like God promised, they will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. Maybe it clicked for a second, what they had done. So they named the place Bochim and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Now notice that they still went after the people and still fought the people as God commanded and took the land, but they didn't go all the way. They didn't drive them out. And they wound up living among them. What does that tell us? That the issue happening right here is partial obedience. It's partial obedience. Heard, I heard someone say, and again, I'm not, I'm not a parenting expert, still, still a work in progress, but I heard someone say one time, when you kind of do the count to 10 thing, like, hey, you need to, you know, go do that right now. I'm going to count to 10. And you're like, well, that's a thing for parents. Like, go pick up your room. I'm going to count to 10. You better go do it. There's going to be some kind of discipline. Or, you know, you better, you know, stop doing that right now. Like, I'm going to count to 10. That that, again, this is something I've heard. But that can actually create the idea that delayed obedience is okay. That you have 10 seconds to disobey mom and dad before. I don't know if you ever heard that before. But I was like, gosh, man. It's like, well, what's the alternative? Like, one, bam! You know, like, I don't feel how, how does that work? But when it comes to partial obedience, God is not for that. God sees partial obedience as disobedience. Because there's almost always a good chance that partial obedience eventually leads to full, so partial obedience eventually leads to full disobedience. Because partial disobedience is about us, it's not about God. We partially obey God when he says, we're going, okay, I'm going to obey God just enough that it doesn't interfere with my life. Like, I'm going to obey God just enough where I can still, like, give a hat tip to him and be identified as, like, Christian people or, like, good people or, like, church people. But, but I'm not going to go so far that it messes with anything. And before you know it, that type of just kind of cultural Christianity where you being a Christian just basically means you're not an atheist and you're not of another religion, you're not an agnostic, eventually becomes meaningless and indifferent altogether. Now, verse 6 of chapter 2 begins with what's considered a second introduction. There's two introductions in the book of Judges. 
He says, previously when Joshua had sent the people away, remember Joshua has died, that's significant here, a new leadership, new era, the Israelites had gone to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. Notice the good things happening. The people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. So we have under Joshua living for the Lord, under those that Joshua led with the elders living for the Lord, they had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. They had seen it all. They remembered who God was, what he had done for them. But Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Apparently he ate a lot of avocados and did yoga and things like that. So they buried him and the territory of his inheritance in timnath Harris and the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gesh. The whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation rose up, this is so important, who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. A new generation who hadn't seen, they weren't reminded, perhaps they weren't taught like they should have been taught, perhaps they didn't know. So what is one of the reasons why now people are drifting towards idolatry or full-fledged in it or partially obeying? Is there's a next generation that doesn't know. I've heard it said before that one generation believes the gospel, like believes it, like in a family, like convictionally, like grandma believes the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. They're not opposed to it, but it just really isn't emphasized. It's not really talked about. Choosing a church, maybe it's not one of the main focuses of choosing a church. It's more just like, do we like it? You know, that, that kind of idea. How's the music? You know, that type of thing. And then after that, the next generation completely loses the gospel. You see a lot of gen- churches today that are, are doing very well in drawing young people, or whatever you want to call it, are oftentimes churches that are giving nothing more than Oprah could give in a message. Either assuming the gospel or not preaching it altogether. I also worry for my generation has become very indifferent towards the local church, just in general. Where in Tallahassee, you claim a local church, but maybe you go like twice, three, four times a year, maybe, maybe once every couple of years. Or if you saw someone at Publix and said, where do you go to church? They'd say they go to that church, but they, you know, don't really, but they still identify with it. I worry that the next generation, that their children will have no affiliation whatsoever. None. Another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. So what was the result of that? The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals, the false gods that they created, and abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. Like the one true God who had done that for them. They followed other gods from surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. This angered the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshiped Baal and the Ashtoreths. And what a tragic story here. This is not an encouraging story in the Bible. Judges is actually pretty brutal. The patterns introduced in this passage of Judges, really verses 11 through 23 of chapter 2, that when the Israelites do what is evil in the sight of God, we see Israel's like progressive spiral downward into idolatry as they increasingly become like the Canaanites that they had been called to exterminate from the land. 
that partial obedience where they took the lamb but didn't do all that God told them to, that partial obedience, now here they are, forgotten God altogether. Now worshiping the Baals, worshiping the gods, the people who don't know the Lord. And we see that God allows the nation to be conquered. This happens in Judges and oppressed by a neighboring nation. It's like a pattern that happens in Judges. The people cry to God. They cry to God for mercy, and then God sends a judge is what he uses. There's no king at the time. Sends a judge to deliver them. And this cycle repeats itself. And in addition to this cycle, the book is kind of structured on the premise of what we could say is like a double plot. Like the overall story is one of national, really just a descent into lawlessness, into apostasy, into sin, into idolatry. But within this nation lies a collection of stories that you can look as you read maybe Judges for yourself that celebrate the heroic acts of some of the people that are known as judges. Even though they have major flaws, these judges, these ones God has appointed, four of these judges are actually mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, where people are rewarded for their faith, where God mentions those who had gone before who examined, who, who were exemplified great faith. So the nature of this time period is described on four different times in this book. What was really happening, the big picture, is mentioned four times, and it's this, Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Some translations say everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's also in Judges 18, 1, 19, 1, and 21, 25. This was basically my truth before it was cool. Like, I'm going to live my truth. I'm going to live my values. This was all that before it was really a thing, before it was cool. So the brief summary statement teaches us really kind of two important facts about the period of the judges in Israel. The first one is there was certainly a crisis of leadership. That's all we see mentioned several times that after Joshua died, back when Joshua was here, this happened. But now that he's gone, this is happening there was also a crisis in Israel's faithfulness to their covenant with God. So how do the people respond to God's blessings on their lives and all they've done for him? They, they worship idols. And it makes no sense, but it doesn't make sense for all of us either. I'll never understand how somebody that's from a loving family goes into rebellion as a teenager or as a college student or a young adult. Like, what are you actually rebelling against? Like, when Christians rebel against God, it makes no sense, because God has, has loved us. He's loved us so much that he sent his only son to die a death that we deserve. He has shown us mercy and grace. We need to remember these things. There's, what are we rebelling against? You love me too much? You care for me too much? You keep your promises to me too closely? And we see 12 judges appointed, six that are called major, six that are called minor, we see Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, who's very famous in the scriptures. And God is going to make sure that the unrepentant people face payday someday for their sins. The Lord's anger burned against Israel. He handed them over to the marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them. They can no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them, just as he had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. But when we see sin, we continue to see God's mercy. 
We see sin and we see God's mercy. The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders, but they did not listen to their judges. So here God raises them up so they can be saved. They don't want it. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them, believing these lies. There's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. Got to go around God, the things I'm looking for in my life, not actually to him. They quickly turned from the way of their ancestors who walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their ancestors did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors, following other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. The Lord's anger burned against Israel. And he declared, because this nation has violated my covenant that I made with their ancestors and disobeyed me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations. When he was cleaning house before that, Joshua left when he died. Again, that's the issue, leadership. Following rather than following the Lord's way and the Lord's words, other ways, other words. I did this to test Israel to see whether or not they would keep the Lord's way by walking in it as their ancestors had. Like, are they with me or not? The Lord left these nations and did not drive them out immediately. He did not hand them over to Joshua. So the point of these punishments that will come on them over and over again is to drive them to repentance, to drive them away from idolatry. Like that is what's happening here. Does God still discipline his people? We see in the scriptures, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that he does. But God does no longer, we could say, punishes his people in the same way. Why? Because all of the consequences eternally and the relational consequences and the punishment for our sins has been poured upon Christ. And all of these stories and judges and before that are all pointing to something. They're pointing to the future. They're pointing to their ultimately. The pattern's so consistent. God blesses his people. They respond by sinning. He punishes them and they repent. So God temporarily delivers his people through judges, individuals called to deliver the people really from their oppressors. The judges come from various tribes. They, all, they're, they're, they work regionally, and none of them have a central role over the entire nation, so it's not a king kind of role. And they all have flaws, but they believe God and his word. We see Deborah, a significant judge. Deborah had really had a, had a neat capacity to inspire bravery in God's people uh, to, and, and loyalty to God from the previously scattered you know, warriors of Israel. Uh, Deborah says this, the villages were deserted, they were deserted in Israel because of their sin until I, Deborah, arose, a mother of, in Israel. So she was a figure that really inspired them to keep going and to not back down from the land. But we see that judges aren't enough. Judges aren't enough for us. Democracy isn't enough. Name that world system. It's not enough. Order isn't enough. Don Carson says this, you cannot make men good by law. You can't. In fact, we have laws because ultimately men and women aren't good. We need more. It points us to something else. And we see this. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors. Verse 19. Following other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them. They did not turn through evil practices. Again, or their obstinate ways. The people, what do they need ultimately? A savior. 
I mean, yes, God would give law and priests before, but they couldn't save him, but only point them to God's holiness. Judges, come on, we just saw that. When a judge died, they went right back to how they used to be. Later on in the Old Testament, kings, they could teach him about God by the foreshadowing of a king, but a human king, that can't save. Then we see prophets who would teach them God's words, very important, but that couldn't save either. A prophet couldn't do that for you. Like God would let his people through generations rely on every other possible means until all those means were exhausted. And they realized that only God can truly save. And even in this difficult book, we see him moving to their ultimate need. We have a story from what's called the book of Ruth, a very short story. Four chapters. And we see in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, during the time of the judges. There's your setting. So all these horrible things are happening. Rebellion, punishment for sin, idolatry, God allowing the nations to be there just over and over again. And Ruth is a Moabite, which means she comes from Canaanite descent. And her mother-in-law lost two of her sons. Two of her sons died. And Ruth felt much loyalty to her mother-in-law. She wanted her mother-in-law to have a grandchild. So they had a way of, of handling death back then, which is called a kinsman redeemer, which is someone from the family of your husband who you could marry that would honor your husband's name and different, different culture, different time, and preserve his legacy and an offspring for him. So... Ruth, as a Moabite, by God's grace, she converts to be someone who identifies the people of Israel by the worship of Yahweh of God. And here's this amazing quote as she tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. The opposite of idolatry, the worship of the one true God. So what happens here is that Ruth goes in to gather supplies and meets someone named Boaz. And one of these days we're actually going to go through the book of Ruth like, in, like really in depth, like maybe like a sermon series. I just go verse by verse through it when we get done with the Bible in a year. But after some exchange and some conversations and some back and forth, we see that Boaz, what a name. I told him a little baby, hey there, Boaz. Boaz, I guess they call him Bo, that would work. Someone near here is definitely named Boaz here. I'm going to get an email this long on tomorrow about how offended they are, but it's okay. God loves you. I just think your name's weird. Sorry. So here we go. Verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. It's like a grandmother figure type of understanding. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And here's where it gets really important as Ruth closes out. He was the father of Jesse, the father of 
of David. So here we are in complete chaos, complete rebellion, complete God punishing idolatry and the Israelites being judged for their actions and, and just denying God, forgetting God, worshiping the Baals, doing what was right in their own eyes rather than what God says. And what's happening all along in the time of the judges in Ruth, God is allowing the circumstances to be worked out where the line that he promised to a family continues. And he's doing it through a, a, Moab, a Moabite woman named Ruth. And where would this lead, this father of Jesse, the father of David? Where would it lead? This would lead all the way to the birth of Christ. God honored justice and yet created a way of escape for evildoers by taking sin upon himself at the cross of Christ. Miroslav Volf describes this as God breaks the vicious cycle of violence by absorbing it himself. See, the nation of Israel was originally called to be a kingdom of priests, this holy nation. But by the end of the book of Judges, Israel's become like everybody else. They resemble those who don't know God more than they actually do what the people of God should look like. They look more like Sodom and Gomorrah than the spiritual nation that God had given them to be. And even in the final story of Judges, chapters 19 through 21, that even points us to more, to even greater things that could happen and will happen. The tribe of Benjamin was just about wiped out God's people. The women and children are gone. Only 600 warriors remain. And where will these men find wives so they can produce offspring and continue their tribe? Well, sadly, the Israelites solved the problem through bloodshed and through kidnapping. I mean, what, a, what an abrupt ending to the book. You know, there has to be something more. Like, what else is out there for us? And there will be. One day, God comes in the person of Jesus Christ to deliver his people from their sins. And here's what's neat that I found in my study for this. The person who takes the message, I, I knew this but didn't connect it, who takes the message throughout the Roman Empire is a Benjamite whose heritage, because of that, can be traced back to the end of Judges. And that's the Apostle Paul. Once again, the gospel keeps on going. And by the end of the book, like the author himself, we find ourselves looking for a king, hopefully, who will be able to actually finally deliver God's people from sin, from corruption, who will give God's people their established inheritance forever. So the judges in the book of Judges, like the kings that are going to come after them, as we'll see in the next few weeks, cause us to look forward to the coming, actual coming of the true king of kings. And together we look for that king who does not do what is right in his own eyes, but as John 6 says, delights to do the Father's will. So in Judges, we see no king. Everyone does right in his own eyes. But while that's happening during the time of the Judges, we see Ruth and this line to David who will point us to the ultimate king. What's the big takeaway? Now, it's important to know that the point of the Bible is God and what he, who he is and what he's doing more than it is a personal takeaway for us, even though that does matter. The takeaway here is in all the turmoil and chaos, disobedience, sin, rebellion, forgetfulness, stubbornness, 
Baal worship of God's people, God never stopped working. God never abandoned his people. He never broke his promise. He never backtracked on what he said. Here is somebody named Ruth, a Moabite woman. Here's the gospel going to the Gentiles who says, your God's going to be my God. And she meets a man named Boaz while simply trying to serve her mother-in-law in that cultural context at that time through offspring of a, king, of a, of a kinsman redeemer. That that child that Ruth would place on Naomi's lap would be the father of Jesse, who's the father of David, the one who actually would become king. And that a promise was made and a covenant was made to David, as we'll see soon, that a descendant of his will always sit on the throne forever. And here we are right this moment, and the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, is ruling and reigning and will for all eternity. What a story. God's at work. God never forgets. God never breaks his promises. And what looks like the most poorest situation for us we can always believe that God is sovereign and working all things together for the good of those who love him. And that's really good news. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us. You are so good to your people. We worship you because you do have a people of your own possession. That you and your grace have chosen us out of the world, even though we do not deserve it. And you've chosen us to be children of light, going from darkness to light, to carry the name of your sons and daughters, be able to refer to you as father. Lord, help us to live as grateful children. Let us to live as people who really do remember who you are and what you've done for us. In the same way you delivered your people out of Israel or out of Egypt, you've delivered us out of our sin and into the great promise of being part of your body and the land that is to come when all things will be made new. So that's will be found faithful We'll be faithful in remembering and Lord, that you'll keep us from idols. How prone and how easy is it for us to drift, to blend in with the world, to believe the lies that there's more out there for us to be gained than there is to be by being in fellowship with you and with your people. So Lord, I ask that there will never be said under our watch that a generation happens that forgets who you are. I thank you for our children's ministry, our youth ministry, our college ministry. Thank you for the parents in this church who are, who are raising children and grandchildren to know you and to fear you. I thank you for those who are part of this church family who might not have children or children here in this, in this town or in this building, that they're all part of this. And they were all together just praying and contributing and being part of this great story of the local church that you have designed for your glory and for your name and for your mission. Lord, I ask that every generation that comes from this church and for other churches in our city, they will always remember that you are God, that you are the exact one, that there is one true God, it is Yahweh, and they will worship at the feet of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And that we will refuse to do what is right in our eyes, but we'll do what's right in your eyes, compelled by the Holy Spirit as your people. We need you. We depend on you. And that's all in the name of Jesus. Amen.